mic check, please. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Ducks on the Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Jennings. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Brazier. My name is John Gordon. I'll be your host. And I'm your host, Katie Burke. Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited Podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you, the DU Podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Ducks Unlimited podcast. I'm your host, Mike Brazier. And today we're going to have a topic that's a little bit different from some of the other things that we typically discuss. I'm joined in studio here by a friend of mine and a professional colleague, Dr. Oren Robinson from the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. Oren, it's great to have you here. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Now, you're here today because I guess you're here in anticipation of a science, waterfowl science symposium that we're having here in Memphis next week. And I seized the opportunity to have you come into our headquarters here. Just a little while ago, you gave a presentation to our staff, both here as well as uh, remotely. Had a ton of people join, and the topic that you talked about there was was eBird. It's an application that you're going to tell us all about. Some of our listeners may have heard about it, but mostly it's associated... most of the people that would be real familiar with it would be classified as bird watchers. But there are a lot of waterfowl hunters, me included, you included, that are familiar with this application and use it for a variety of reasons, uh, personal reasons, you know, for our personal interest. A lot of us in this field use it for professional reasons in terms of kind of helping us understand bird ecology uh, in, to inform some conservation planning and things of that nature. And so we're going to talk mostly about eBird as we get through this this episode. But to begin with, I want you to introduce yourself to our audience. Tell us where you grew up, some of your hobbies, what you, how you became interested in birds, and then kind of where you are now. So go for it. Tell, tell us about yourself. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm Warren Robinson. I'm from uh, Mobile, Alabama, Originally went to uh, went to school at Auburn University. I uh, did a master's degree at the University of South Alabama on uh, brown pelican nesting ecology, and uh, did a PhD at Rutgers University in New Jersey on uh, using mathematical models in in conservation applications. And uh, yeah, from there I went back to Auburn University, worked with. Uh, USGS co-op there at Auburn and the uh, Black Duck Joint Venture on Black Duck Population Studies. And then I went to Cornell University and I have been there for a little over six years now and uh, I'm still there. I want you to back up a little bit before your college days. Tell us about your, your childhood, your upbringing. You grew up in Mobile. You're a southerner. You grew up like most southern. I think you were, think you were telling me that you grew up in the city you know, in Mobile, but you got out, you hunted, you fished. Uh, tell us about that. How is that what drew you to the, the field of, of conservation science and to the profession that you're in now? You know, it, it really is. I, uh, you know, like you said, grew up hunting and fishing. And like uh, like most folks who, who hunt and fish, you know, you're always wondering, well, 
why are the birds landing over there yeah. and not right here? You know, why do I see deer on on days that are, you know, like this or in this situation and, and not in others? Uh, and late in my college career at Auburn, I realized that uh, you could make a career out of trying to answer some of those questions. Yep. Uh, and that, uh, you know, that that really piqued my interest and uh, kind of shoved me in this direction, uh, you know, trying to answer those questions. But yeah, from a, from a young age, you know, uh, you're always wondering about that stuff, maybe not in the, um, you know, the, the conservation-minded way that we are now, but you, you want to know those things to, to make you uh, a better, you know, hunter or fisherman. Yeah, it sparks that sort of intellectual curiosity of the natural world. And, and at that early age, it's, for a lot of us, it was... There's nothing wrong with this. It's for selfish reasons, right? Absolutely. Like I want to know why the birds go in there because I want to be able to tell where they're going. I want to know where the deer are. I want to know where to catch the fish. But that requires you to understand the ecology of the species, its interaction with its habitat. And then you, as you said, you become fascinated with that and you realize, holy cow, there's a potential career opportunity here. And so that leads me to kind of wonder, I'm going to learn a few things about you that I didn't previously know. You said that it was late in your college career that you realized that there, that there was a career opportunity there. What, was, what were you majoring in prior to that and what were you thinking that your career path would be? So my undergraduate degree is, is in biomedical sciences. Oh, that's why you're so smart. Well... <laughs> <laughs> you're you're one of the few people that's ever accused me of being that. Uh, yeah, so I had to uh, I had to do a a research project, and I got put on a research project with a, a grad student there at at Auburn University who was studying gopher tortoises. And I went around with him. He was uh, studying this certain hormone in gopher tortoises. But in order to do that, you got to catch them. And in order to catch them, you got to know where they are. And I got super interested in that and was asking him, you know, well, why do we find them over here? You know, do they like this certain plant? It seems like burrows are near this type of bush or, or something like that. And he went, man, you, you should have been in ecology. <laughs> and at that point, I didn't even know what ecology was. Yeah. Um, like you said, I, I'd been thinking about it my whole life you as a hunter and a fisherman. But I didn't know ecologist was, without knowing it. Right. And uh, that's that's kind of what what put that in into my head. That's pretty pretty cool. And, and so... You and I first met sometime around 2018, 2017, something of that nature. I was I was back when I, I was down at the Gulf Coast Joint Venture, and that was about the time where eBird was becoming more widely known and, and more widely used for various migratory bird conservation planning applications. And we reached out. We wanted to learn a little bit more about it, and we had some conversations. Then we had a meeting together, and it was at that time that you invited me to go hunting with your dad and a friend of your your dad's and a friend of yours in, in Arkansas. And it was at that moment that like I said, this guy is really smart. He's super quantitatively inclined. He knows all this data and he's a duck hunter. I need to stay close to this guy. He can help us out with a lot of things. And so I kind of revealed part of my motive for <laughs> for, for interacting with you in, in a variety of these different meetings and these different projects. We do have some projects that we're working on together, some collaborations between DU and the Cornell Lab of Ornithology, which I, I'm really excited about, uh, some potential to use all the really cool applications, the data that y'all are collecting to help us do a better job now and certainly going forward with our understanding of waterfowl migrations or just waterfowl ecology in general, and then how we can incorporate that new understanding into conservation planning. So it's a lot of really cool stuff that that we're thinking about and moving towards. And so 
a lot of it, as I said, revolves around data collected through eBird. Before we get to eBird, I'm going to give you an opportunity here for people that may not have heard about it, may not be familiar with it, to talk about Cornell Lab of Ornithology. It's world-renowned, but y'all have really taken it to another level here over the past 15 or maybe even 20 years, but certainly the last 15 years that I that I can uh, see in terms of your use and application of big data from the bird world. So tell us, for those that may not be familiar with it, briefly about the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. Yeah, so the, the Cornell Lab of Ornithology has uh, is part of Cornell University. Um, there's also a, uh, it also operates as a nonprofit organization. It is, uh, you know, my, my little corner of it is the, the conservation and working on the, you know, the, the models and things like that with the big data. Um, but there is a ton of other things going on there. There's, you know, the, uh, there's a lot of evolution studies that come out of there. There's the Macaulay Library, which hosts millions and millions of, of photos and sounds from the, uh, you know, that are recorded by, you know, scientists and, you know, citizen scientists. Um, there is the, the citizen science arm, the, uh, you know, the social sciences side of the lab. Uh, you know, education, K through 12 education, there's, there's a large group that, that works on that. Um, I'm sure I'm forgetting things, but there's, there is a lot of things related to uh, the bird world going on there other than, you know, the, the few things that I work on. So you mentioned citizen science. You you in, you mentioned the some of these other different data sets, and I don't think it's any secret that it was the development of mobile phones, the kind of the modern smartphones that opened the door in a massive way to the type of data that y'all are collecting now. And and although we t- we've talked before about waterfowl hunters and others um, in in the community being some of the original citizen scientists, ordinary people, you might say, that are contributing data for scientific purposes. When you call in and report a band, you're contributing data. You're a, quote, citizen scientist. Uh, When you report a neck collar on an observed goose or something like that, that's a, quote, citizen science observation. It's just we've termed it, that that phrase is, uh, a term has been coined probably in the last 15 years or something like that. And the advent of smartphones has just blown open the door in terms of the ability for a whole host of people to collect and help contribute data to the to the um, to institutions like Cornell and a whole host of others. There's a number of applications out there that people can download to their app that would fall into this category. iNaturalist is one. eBird is one. Uh, I that there's there's a a ton of different ones. I I don't know them all. I'm not going to try to name them all. But when we say citizen scientists, that's kind of what we're talking about. Ordinary people that in one way or another are collecting data and submitted it, submitting it in sort of a curated in a standard way that's being curated and it is then used for scientific purposes. Right? Yes. So talk to us about eBird. Uh, that's that's the big topic here. When did that come about, roughly speaking? And I realize you haven't been at Cornell for the entire length of of that application being available, but to your understanding of sort of the history of that, just kind of describe that. Describe that to us and kind of tell us what eBird is. Yeah, so eBird is, uh, you know, it's a platform that that tries to, to harness the the want of, of birders to go out 
and observe as many species as they can and record it. It, uh, it started in the early 2000s. It has, uh, you know, like you said, it has really taken off recently. It, it continues to grow every year. Um, the, the platform itself is, is very easy to use. Um, prior to the smartphone app, folks would go and put in their recordings uh, online, you know, but it also records things like where you were, uh, how long you were out there, uh, how far you traveled while you were looking for these birds, uh, and things like that that really help us use that data, right? Because it gives us an idea of the effort that was put into your birding. By effort, you mean how long you spent on your on your bird watching adventure or right. your, your trek that day, right? Because like that. Uh, you know it's if it takes you longer to find a, a given species in one habitat than it does in another, that that gives us information about the species preferences for that habitat, things like that. Potentially the relative abundance. If you go out and spot five cardinals in two minutes, then chances are that there's going to be a greater abundance of of cardinals than if it took you an hour to spot five or something. Is that, right. is that right. fair? Yeah. If you're kind of moving type yeah. thing. Okay. So, and and it's it's an application that you can access. It's eBird, just small e, capital B-I-R-D. Yes. And it's, it's an application that you can download to your phone. It's also an application that you can access through a laptop or, or any other kind of desktop application, yes, right? eBird.org. eBird.org. Um, I have it on my phone. I have an eBird account. I've contributed. I'm not the best contributor of <laughs> most frequent contributor. I, it's, it's seasonal. I think you were talking about that earlier in that sort of the, the activity level that people invest in bird watching and recording their observations is seasonal. And I fall into that category as well. Um, and so as we get into this, we'll be kind of tempted to get into some technical areas. Like you just gave a 40 minute presentation with, with visual aids and talking about all that, showing all these graphs and all these different maps. We obviously can't do that with, uh, with a podcast. So we'll try to avoid some of the more technical aspects of it that would benefit from kind of visual aids. But, but I do want to talk about about the application for those people that may not be aware of it. Like just generally speaking, what does it consist of? Like I have eBird on my, on my app or on my, uh, the eBird app on my phone. If I wanted to use it, what do I do? And what are the basics that I need to know? Yeah, so, you know, you, you will download that eBird app. Um, it'll be, you know, linked to your eBird account. And you, uh, you click a button that says start a checklist and it will keep track of the time for you. Uh, it will track where you go if you want it to. And some while, of those things are controllable. You can specify, it's kind of a privacy issue. You yes. give the user the ability to dictate how yeah. much information y'all are collecting about them. Definitely. And then you, you know, you'll have a list of birds for the region you're in. You can download different packs, like if you're traveling, um, because those things take up a lot of space. You don't just automatically have all the birds of the world on there. Um, so if you're, you know, traveling to South America, you could download the bird list from that region. It would have that on your phone, uh, on, on the eBird app. And you start uh, counting birds as you move around. When you, when you stop, eBird will ask you a few questions, you know, uh, how long were you out there? How far did you go? If you've got, you know, your phone's keeping track of that for you. Um, so you don't really have to have to guess. But if you've disabled that location service type thing, then it will ask you to approximate the distance, right? Yes. Okay. Yes, it will. 
Um, and then you'll uh, you'll answer, you know, one final question. Was this a complete checklist of all the birds you were able to identify? And if you say yes, then uh, that also gives us information about all the birds that were not there to be identified. You know, and that just that doesn't necessarily mean that those birds weren't there. It just means you did not detect them on that checklist. Some birds are very hard to detect, and even if they're there, you may not see them. Yeah, and also the the expert expertise level of the observer is it varies widely, right? Like Absolutely. there's a lot of I consider myself a decent birder, and that's a decent birder from sort of an average layperson perspective. And a decent birder from the perspective of someone in your in your lab would probably be totally <laughs> different than mine. But uh, I consider myself a decent birder, but there's a lot of different species that that I can't identify either by sight, some of the flycatchers are just a pain in the rear, or, or certainly by uh, by their calls. I'm not great at, their, at detecting birds by, by calls. And let me ask you about that. Um, kind of side note here, if you hear a bird, can you enter that in eBird? Or, and if you do, are you asked to indicate if it was an audible detection only? Yes, you can enter a bird that you hear. Um, there are a lot of species. So one for me that that I get on my property uh, during migration is red-eyed vireo. Mm. They have a very distinct call, right. but they're often at the very tops of trees. Yeah. So I almost, I won't say I almost never see them, but I, 75% of the time I hear them and don't see them. Um, but you know it's there. Yeah. You know that red-eyed vireo is yeah. there because it's singing. Or you can hear two, one over here and one over here. And so you know there's two, right? Right. Yeah. And so, yes, you can... You can list it if you hear it and you're confident in that ID. Uh, you do not have to say, I heard it only. I typically do. When I don't, I'll put it in the comments. I, I heard it, uh, didn't see it. Um, but it's not It's not a mandate. It's not going to ask you, you know, yeah. did you see it or did you just hear it? And when people submit that checklist, it goes to a database that is curated by the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. And... And so you have contributed data to this massive, massive data set. I, th I think you told, I heard you say earlier how many total observations y'all are up to now. What's that number? It's over a billion, but it, it continues to grow every year. It grows considerably every year, and it's uh, it's growing at a pretty good rate outside of the United States here too, which is exciting for us because it just means we have more data for more regions to work with. Um, and that's uh, you know again selfishly that's that's exciting to to have yeah because it's it's available for use worldwide it's available in multiple languages I don't know how many languages it's over but thirty over thirty different languages so it's pretty cool to see all of this information come together and as a as a person in this field who really likes bird data and sees the use for it both from a personal standpoint as well as professional conservation planning standpoint. The one thing that we are in inherently kind of wired to do as scientists and, and uh, people in the technical field is to be very strong critics, to to criticize. It's part of this peer review process, right? It's Definitely. a very strong um, desire to ask questions to to ensure that the data that we're collecting is is you know accurate, is useful, is is valid for whatever application we're, we're using it for. And so I recall some of the first times that I began to learn about eBird and instantly my critical mind goes <laughs> goes into motion. And I start thinking about, well, how do you account for differential 
expertise levels among the observers? How do you account for the fact that some people just can't identify these birds? And so therefore, that's going to appear as though the bird's not there, but it's not there simply because they can't identify it. There's other uh, potential biases associated with, uh, well, just the, um, the, the, the rareness of the bird or the cryptic coloration of the bird or the fact that they may not be very vocal, may not be seen very often, and a whole host of other potential biases. And so you talked earlier about a number of those in your presentation, and we're not going to step through all of those, but I've seen you give a number enough presentations and heard you talk about how you account for those biases to reassure me that you, you acknowledge those biases and you're doing a hell of a lot of work to account for them in very, very impressive ways. So what I'll do is ask you to talk about the bias that is pointed out to y'all most often and use that as an example of the type of work that y'all go to to adjust for those biases. The bias that gets, uh, you know, a lot of folks immediately um, come up with is, is spatial bias. The idea that different locations are e-birded differently um, in terms of the number of people that are going there at, at, at you know, a, a given time of the year. So, like major metropolitan areas versus north central, extreme rural Mississippi. Right. right. Or, you know, extreme hotspots like Cape May, New Jersey. Um, we get a ton of checklists from there. Uh, you can imagine with all the the birders at the Lab of Ornithology that, yeah. that Tompkins County, New York, is uh, very well represented yeah. in the eBird data. So those places have a lot more data coming from them than, like you said, you know, rural Mississippi or something like that. So that is is the spatial bias, and one of the ways we uh, we begin handling that is to. Uh, essentially just grid sample the data. You know, if a hundred people went to a certain spot uh, to see, you know, uh, a rarity that was there in a given day, we would only use one of those checklists. Um, So it doesn't, you know, more weight isn't given to a a certain spot or location than others when we do our analyses. So that's that's just one example. That's just one example. Yeah, and I and I know there's all sorts of other really cool ways that y'all tried to account for biases. We can't get into all of those, but you know the point is that you have a phenomenal team of scientists and colleagues that are thinking about this. You were telling me that one of your earlier jobs and responsibilities within the Cornell Lab was to to probe these models, to probe this data, data set and the products that you're developing, sort of as a you know, to, to validate, to fact check, for lack of a better word, to make sure that what you're getting is 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 worth using or is reliable, I guess, maybe a, a reliable to the point that it can be used for some of the applications that we're wanting to use it for now, right? Yes, there there's a team um, there at the lab that does nothing but research and development on these products that, that we, the, these types of models that we use at the lab. And uh, it's incredible what what they come up with year after year. You know, every year it gets a little better, a little more accurate, a little more user friendly. Um, and uh, yeah, it's uh, it's awesome to be a part of that group. Oren, we've already been talking here for about twenty five minutes, and so <laughs> I know we have a number of other things that we want to get into more on the application side of things. I know a lot of our audience is waterfowl hunters, and 
I want I want us to talk about that a little bit. Both of us being waterfowl hunters and eBird users, we think about this a lot in terms of the potential utility of eBird to for our either personal uses in understanding migration or monitoring migration and certainly from the science and conservation planning side of things we think about that a lot so we want to come back we want to talk about that but but we'll take a break right now and then we will finish up the conversation here on the back side of this sound good sounds good Welcome back, everyone. We're here with Dr. Oren Robinson, the Cornell Lab of Ornithology, and we're going to pick up our conversation. Uh, we're talking about eBird, and we're going to transition away from some of the more technical aspects of it, and we're going to talk about some of the applications of it. And there's a there's a ton of stuff that we could talk about right here. Right here. But what I want you to do is highlight one or two of the of your best examples, most popular examples of how eBird data these billion, over a billion observation have been leveraged for, let's just say, pretty cool purposes. Maybe maybe talk about the animated map that is one of the key outputs of this. It really gets people's attention. Yeah, so that, uh, that animated map is, um, you know, for, we have, I think coming soon will be about 2,500 species of, uh, of birds that we have modeled their relative abundance at a roughly three by three kilometer resolution across the globe for every week of the year. Uh, and that, that's a, that's a really exciting thing to see. Um, and if you, if you go online through, through the eBird website, you can find these on the uh, eBird science tab is, is where to go look for these. And you can just watch these, uh, these pixels change colors as as the birds move across the hemisphere, um, you know, during their throughout the year, throughout their their annual cycle. It, it cre- you've created basically some uh, an application that that animates the results from all these different observations. And there's a lot of other modeling that goes into it, right? We're not just looking at the raw data. Right. Whenever you've seen that animated map, you're looking at the results of some very sophisticated models that take that raw data and then relate it to different landscape characteristics and, you know, across the globe and through time. And you build these spatio-temporal models, right? And so it's really, really cool. Go. That, that's the other thing we haven't talked about yet, and I'm glad you did, is there are a lot of products produced from all of this data from the Cornell Lab that the average person, anybody, can go to the website, ebird.org, and explore those those applications, explore those products in those animated maps for our audience of waterfowl will be most interesting. Just a couple of weeks ago, I saw our chief conservation officer, Dr. Karen Waldrop, giving a presentation. And she, she had in her presentation one of the animated maps of northern pintails. And she remarked that this was her favorite slide in the entire presentation because it shows that international cross-boundary migration of northern pintails from the Arctic in Canada into the U.S., into Mexico and Central America, showing, visualizing what we know, what we know from from decades of science, but nevertheless, this is kind of taking it to a new level that a lot of people, probably the average person might not appreciate, is just the, the scale at which those birds move, 
the distances that they move, and it's just a phenomenal product to visually uh, demonstrate those movements. And y'all have used it to help identify, and, and other people in the avian community, conservation community, are using those products to to identify areas of high importance for different species, right? Yeah, definitely. And those those maps, they're they're beautiful too. They're if you're a map nerd like me, I, I could spend hours just looking at different species maps and how they move. Um, they are they are fascinating to to look at. But there's there's a lot of information in them as well, and we we've been using that information on. Uh, a number of conservation applications. One that uh, you know some of your listeners may even be aware of are are the uh, the bald eagle studies we've been doing with this. Um, one of those studies uh, was in, or both of them actually were were with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Um, one of them was looking at their risk maps. So when uh, you know, wind infrastructure needs to be built or someone applies to build wind infrastructure, they have to undergo this period of of uh, observation that, that shows that um, they're not going to be building that in a spot where a lot of eagles may uh, interact with mm-hmm. that, that wind infrastructure. And the, the map that had been being used was a very coarse, you know, at the, the state type of level, um, you know, which which kept a lot of, of of wind farms from from going forward without this long couple of years worth of observation process. So, what we helped them to do was to use our data and our models to put together a map at the uh, you know three by three kilometer scale, which is about the scale of one of these mm-hmm. these wind farms, to show the relative abundance of eagles to help streamline that process for the the wind industry another project we did with them on bald eagles was to take that data and relate it to a lot of their aerial surveys their nest counts things like that and help fill in where there was a lot of missing data and help them uh to estimate the abundance of bald eagles across each flyway and then and then the uh, you know overall North American abundance of bald eagles, and that's that was in the news, gosh, six months ago, yeah, something like yeah, that. Yeah, I think I saw the publication come out, and yeah. it's, it, it's not necessarily replacing the data that the Fish and Wildlife Service necessarily no, been not collecting. At all. It's supplementing it and increasing our confidence in the understanding of where the birds are, the relative abundances, and then we can in turn do a better job planning around that, right? To mitigate the risk to those, those species. Right. There was there was another um, another project done with uh, on on model ducks, just like like just like you're talking about. We when um, you know the the COVID stopped several of the um, waterfowl surveys from being from being flown. And we used eBird data and related it to the last 10 or 12 years of the aerial surveys for model ducks, you know, across Texas and Louisiana, and were able to use what we learned about those two data sets, their relationship, to essentially predict what those surveys would have seen had they been flown. Um, so, so you can definitely use uh, eBird in, in that way as well. And that model duck survey is down on the on the Gulf Coast, the Western Gulf Coast. I'm I'm quite familiar with that that survey. 
eBird was not used for the larger waterfowl breeding population and habitat survey, you know, across the the Dakotas, the prairies, the one that we've been talking so much about here over the past month. eBird was not used, you know, it, not used it to help kind of fill in a gap in those data points, right? We're just talking about the model duck survey down on the Gulf Coast. Yes, yeah. just that very specific model duck survey there. It's not to say that someday there wouldn't be interest in trying to combine data from eBird and that waterfowl breeding population habitat survey to increase the precision of, of that kind of stuff, right? I'm very interested in that. Uh, <laughs> you yeah. and a lot of other people too, I would imagine. Yeah. So, um, you know, there's a, on the conservation planning side of things, I mentioned that at the outset, that's kind of how you and I first developed a professional relationship is we were working along the Gulf Coast and a lot of joint ventures that are tied to non-breeding regions, areas important during the non-breeding period, use what we call bioenergetic models to kind of figure out how much habitat we need to be providing to support waterfowl populations in our region. We've talked about bioenergetic models on some previous episodes, and I won't go into those details, but a key part of those models is an understanding of the migration chronology by species of waterfowl in our region for the, I guess, the initial the initial versions of most of those bioenergetic models, the migration chronology parts of them were based on historical surveys that were conducted at local scales, on the ground skir- surveys conducted by states, conducted by federal agencies, either across the landscape or at, at wildlife management areas or national wildlife refuges. And all of those data were kind of combined to develop these migration curves. When do they arrive? When do they peak? When do they fall off? And you do that and it kind of gives you this idea of the relative abundance through time of the birds that you need to be supporting. One of the things that we in the waterfowl conservation community have seen is that a lot of agencies and entities are de-emphasizing those local scale surveys. There's still a lot of them that occur, but nothing like it used to be. And so in the joint venture conservation planning arena, we began to think, hey, we we need to start, you know, thinking about how, what's the next set of contemporary data that we're going to need to use or that we'll be able to use for updating our migration uh, chronology curves in these models because things are changing. Things have always changed. We've changing uh, distributions of waterfowl during winter is certainly a hot topic. We've seen it for decades, Canada geese being the first group of birds that we really saw go through some type of migration change. And so we constantly constantly have to keep track of that and, and adjust our conservation planning models. And so we began to look at eBird as a potential opportunity or as a potential data set to replace some of those historical ones, you know, with, with more contemporary data. But then, of course, as I said, mentioned earlier, one of the first things that we do is kind of probe that data set and say, is it how accurate are these migration curves based on these observational data from, from, from eBird? And so we've been working on a project with you. So talk about that a little bit. You used it as an example in your presentation today about what we're doing to kind of validate eBird data for that waterfowl migration chronology purpose. Yeah, so... That's, uh, you know, that's a very reasonable question to ask when you start this is essentially how good is it, right? Um, and that's, that's, that's really the question a lot of people want to ask about this. And we have to validate it. You know, it's, it's, uh, that's, that's part of the scientific process there. You, you don't want to just blindly use this. You know, I think it's good. The folks at the lab think it's good. But we've got to prove that it is. And what we've been doing is taking uh, aerial surveys. So the the one project that you mentioned, we used aerial surveys from 
the Illinois Natural History Survey at the the Forbes Biological Field Station there, and lined them up essentially uh, by week with the uh, the eBird weekly status models. And what we found was uh, very good agreement, really, between those models uh, for the fall. You know, for that fall migration, the the big chunk coming through. The peaks were about the same. They started arriving about the same time between both data sets. They peaked at about the same time. They fell off at about the same time, right? Right, right. And and we know, um, you know, what goes up must come down, yeah. right? So they got to come back through there in the spring. And what we were seeing was the Illinois Natural History Survey was not picking up ducks on their surveys in the spring, whereas the eBird survey was showing another big peak of, of migrators coming back down uh, or, or going back up, I guess. Yeah. So, again, that's, that's disagreement there between the, two, uh, between the two, you know, sources of data. And, you know, but that, as you said earlier, it doesn't mean, doesn't mean either one of them were wrong. Right. right. It's not an issue of which one's right and which one's wrong. What we were able to show was that at that time of the year, uh, those main river channels are flooded. You know, in spring, those main river channels are, are flooded, and that's what the aerial surveys are flying. You know, so there's no ducks sitting on that fast-moving water. So the aerial surveys were picking up that there are no ducks sitting on the fast-moving mm-hmm. water, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, that you would expect them to find very few birds. Whereas e-birders are not going to go look in a spot where there's yeah. no birds. They're going to go find them. Yeah. And that's why we see the peak with e-bird versus the uh, the Illinois aerial surveys. And, you know, that's, uh, to me, that is a uh, great case study on why we need both data sets. Mm-hmm. You know, because both data sets are, are really observing different parts of the population at different times a year. And, and that was a, uh, a really cool finding, I think, out of, that, out of that study. A shout out to our collaborators on that study, Dr. Ariel Fournier with the Illinois Natural History Survey and Dr. Kevin Ringelman down at LSU. They've been instrumental in that. And we still have some work to go. Uh, Aaron Yetter, also Illinois Natural History Survey, can't leave him out. Uh, but they've been instrumental in, in that study as well. Um, feel like I'm probably forgetting someone, but that's always the risk whenever you start naming people. My apologies if I'm forgetting someone. I want to move on here, Oren, to talk about a few other things here before we close this out. There's a lot of other applications for waterfowl that we could explore in this. But I want to... Um, I guess the one that I'll talk about here, I don't know how far we are down this road. Where are we with our use beyond what we just talked about in terms of looking at migration chronology throughout the year? Where are we in being able to use eBird data to potentially look at changes in waterfowl migration over time through years? What Any, any work going on there and what would be, where do we stand on that? So, to my knowledge, there has not been any specific work done on on waterfowl and uh, migration change using eBird data. Um, like I said, the eBird you know eBird project itself only started in the in the early two thousands. So, you know, as of right now, there's there's really no uh, long term data there to see. That, that long-term shift in, in migration. Prior to the early 2000s, right? Right, yeah. right. So that's, uh, that's a difficult thing to tease out right now using eBird data. So there have been some examples of uh, phenological mismatch using eBird data. And what that is is that migratory birds 
seem to arrive on the breeding grounds in order, or as they migrate, it may they may arrive at a stopover or breeding ground uh, to take advantage of some resource. And a lot of the times that'll be, you know, the the green up of of certain species of trees and the bugs that that might attract. So the the phenological mismatch is when the birds arrive and that has either already happened or hasn't happened yet, and that could play a role in changing migratory habits for a species. Or it could have consequences for nutritional condition of the birds as they go back north. You Absolutely. Know, if, if, like, if they arrive, if the green up occurs before they arrive, then perhaps they have missed, they have arrived later than the time at which, let's say, the nutritional or the protein content is highest in some of that greening vegetation. That's one of the hypotheses, right? Right, right. And they have missed that, you know, resource pulse that they may be relying on uh, to help drive the rest of their migration. Migrations is, is expensive energetically. And uh, they need that. Yeah. So there have been some some examples of that uh, using eBird data in uh, smaller passerine birds, um, but not in waterfowl, to my knowledge. You're a waterfowl hunter. I'm a waterfowl hunter. We both use eBird. Do you use the eBird application when you're out hunting? Do you record your observations? I do. I, I record, um, you know, the waterfowl we see. Uh, also, you know, you're always hearing you know, this species of woodpecker mm-hmm. or yeah. have cardinals or certain sparrows that'll fly over. Um, so, yes, I, I do. I record. Do people, do your hunting partners think you're weird? Well, they think that anyway. <laughs> um, <laughs> this is a great answer. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that just, you know, adds to the, yeah, adds to I, it. I think it's awesome. I, I you know, increasingly it's, uh, we have a, a coworker here who's, who's, gotten a kick out of her her husband's uh, newfound appreciation and fascination with with migratory birds uh, notably hummingbirds here recently and so she was just telling us about that today and so I think it's I think the increased availability of knowledge about the fascination of migration and that it's not just waterfowl you know to our audience it's not just waterfowl that undertake these incredibly impressive migratory feats and in fact it's some of the other groups of birds that to me their migratory feats are even more astounding and impressive because waterfowl are big-bodied birds. They can pack on a lot of fat, a lot of calories. That's also one of the reasons why they may not have to migrate as far, you know. Um, but insectivorous birds, their resource, food resource up here, it's gone. Like a lot of our barn swallows and other aerial insectivorous birds are already way south in in, in, in South America. And, and so, I don't know. There's just the more information, and I think of e- applications like eBird and the products y'all have developed uh, GPS telemetry, all sorts of new technology have helped people appreciate the astounding feat of migration that all different types of birds take. And so I have, I think there's a growing interest in migratory bird ecology in general. And I think it would be awesome if we could get more waterfowl hunters to participate in some of these types of things. Do you record the number of waterfowl that you see as well during your times out hunting? I do. So I have a question for you in that regard. One of the things that, one of the parts of the eBird kind of data collection uh, effort is like how long you've been out there doing it. And I think I've heard some of your, your colleagues at Cornell say, you like to, you don't like it, or you prefer people don't um, 
record observations over a period longer than two hours or something? Is there anything like that? Am I misremembering something? Or tell me about that. Yeah. So it's um, we prefer more short checklists, and that's because um, it it helps. So short in in you know, the time you've spent birding and short in the distance you travel. So if you're going to go on a 15-mile hike, you can make checklists all along that 15-mile hike, but just maybe start another one every mile or so. Um, that really helps us with positional accuracy when uh, when we go to model these things. Because you're modeling the occurrence and abundance of a bird with some landscape variables that y'all can pull from other data sets, right? Yes, and if, if we're off on that a little bit, then we may not be as accurate yeah. as possible. So when you're hunting then, this is great because I've always kind of wondered this and I really didn't really know the answer on how to do it. So when you're hunting, you will maybe take five minutes here, maybe take 10 minutes there. Maybe it's a lull in in the, the flight activity for waterfowl. And that would be the time where you would do your birding for, well, for whatever the bird might, you might observe or, or hear, right? Mm. And then maybe you do three or four of those over the course of the morning, right? Right. So, Oren, one of the questions naturally that waterfowl hunters may be concerned about if they're, at, if they're recording observations of waterfowl at their, at their hunting location is they may be concerned about other people learning of that. Um, have you had any instances, have you heard of any instances of somebody losing their, their having lost out on a particular hunting location or having somebody, someone else discover a secret spot uh, in response to eBird observations or anything of that nature? What can you tell people to sort of ease some of their concerns? So I have not heard of that happening. Um, you would, uh, a person would have to do some uh, some serious sleuthing on on the eBird site to be able to determine where you were, what you saw, and that kind of thing. Um, and and to my knowledge, it's uh, that has not been an issue where someone has has you know gone in and, and stolen someone's hunting spot because of their eBird checklists. Uh, anything else, kind of on that front, from a waterfowler perspective, with regard to eBird, how you found it useful? What's particularly exciting to you about it? Anything we need to share? You know, I think we've uh, we, we've covered the the highlights there. It's uh, I, I just enjoy using it. Uh, it also, you know, uh, it's almost like keeping a, a field notebook as well. So you could look back over your observations from a year before if you, if you're keeping track in eBird. Uh, and see, you know, what time of year you started seeing more birds um, at your given location or something like that. And and you can look across years at, you know, Will, I was, you know, they were here a week earlier that year. That was weird or, or something like that, um, you know, to, to, to help you out a little bit. Because when you create an account, that's your own personal account. And as you said, it's your personal record. You can look back through however long you're involved in, in associated with that, or you have that eBird account to look at those observations, right? Right. Uh, that's really cool. I want, what I want to do is, is kind of move on real quickly before we close out to mention at least one other application that that Cornell is has produced and has put out there. I have it on my phone. I am a huge fan of it. There's a couple of others that people that that are that are active on social media. If they follow Ducks Unlimited, they've probably seen us reference. One is Birdcast. Uh, the other the other real noteworthy thing that the Cornell Lab of Ornithology 
ornithology is associated with is birds of the world, collection of species profiles of birds all across the world. I use those often. They're a phenomenal resource. Uh, Birdcast is, you know, something people can look into. It tries to predict, I think you were saying earlier, uh, on any given day or any given night, the biomass of birds migrating through the airspace. It uses radar, uh, weather radar data. And the most, the coolest application that I've seen for that here recently is like from a from a mitigating or minimizing risk to birds is this lights out lights out Houston lights out Dallas um, maybe I'll get you to, I'm, I'm getting kind of excited talking about that maybe, maybe say a few words about that that's a really cool application of big data to help mitigate risk to birds right one of the uh, one of the big you know threats to migrating birds is uh, window strikes and you know there's you go through new york city the morning after a big uh migration event and and you will find you know warblers and and others that that have been you know killed by running into windows and those lights you know they disorient them they make the window a lot less visible while they're up there flying um in these lights out campaigns they use birdcast to determine when there's going to be a very large migration event near or, or that's going through a given city. And they will have all the buildings, hopefully, uh, turn their lights off to make it easier for birds to recognize that that's a building. And uh, that's, that's you know, a, just a fantastic use of that, uh, that bird cast. I know Audubon is real active in promoting that lights out campaign, um, and it's that's a remarkable application of data um, to help us better manage the resource. The other thing, just from a bird watching and kind of hobbyist, and well, not necessarily just hobbyist, but eBird perspective as well, is that BirdCast kind of gets people excited about these big migration events. You and I were talking about that, and I can tell you that it's whenever I see those those alerts, birdcast alerts, big big migration alerts. I can count on seeing a lot of new migrants in our backyard the next day. And so, yeah, I kind of gear some of my bird watching activities around that. Do you do that as well? I do. I do. I like to, to pay attention. If you're you're on social media and you you follow anybody from the lab, you'll see that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. get out and get out in the morning because there's a lot of birds coming, you know. And I think it's pretty amazing how accurate that is, right? Yeah. Yeah. The other the other kind of subset of those migrants that that we won't talk too much about here, but is like uh, waterfowl migration. Can we use BirdCast yet to identify big migrations of waterfowl? Do we know anything about that? We're not there yet necessarily on a species level. Yeah, we, we're definitely not on a species level, right? Because, you know, it's it's radar data and it, it can't necessarily uh, determine species, right? And and it's what it's doing is, is measuring biomass, Um you know, if it's a a bunch of geese, that then, could then that's going to be the same biomass as you know ten uh, times the number of smaller right, birds, a, a right? A couple hundred, yeah. you know, yellow warblers, right? Yeah. Um, so, what you really kind of need to do is know what species are migrating at what time yeah. uh, to tell you. You know, this this is not waterfowl. This is those smaller birds because they they tend to migrate with with some exceptions, but they tend to migrate at different times of the year. 
I'm confident that we'll one day get there with some finer scale radar data, whether that's your, whether it's accurate or not. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. But most every other piece of technology that we have is advancing. And so it's, it's reasonable to think that we will get to a point where we're closer to being able to identify to species or family groups or something like that sometime in the future. But, you know, kind of fingers crossed that, that we do. The last, last thing we'll talk about here, and it's what I wanted you to talk about here a few minutes ago, is the Merlin app, uh, mobile app on that people can download to their to their phone, their smartphones, Merlin. Fantastic app that the Cornell Lab has put out. Uh, tell us about that. Yeah, Merlin, Merlin is, is great. Um, it is an app that helps you identify birds, whether it's, it's one you are looking at, you can go into Merlin and say, help me ID this bird, essentially. And it will ask you a handful of questions. You know, how big is the bird? What are the main colors on the bird? What was it doing? Um, where did you see it? You know, did you see it soaring? Did you see it sitting on a, a fence post? Something like that. Um, and then it will help you, based on your location, help you figure out what bird. It, it may not give you a single bird and say it's this, but it'll give you a, a few options and say these are the birds that match that description. Um, and then you can go from there uh, trying to figure out which one of those it is. It also allows you to load a picture. So if you have a picture of a bird, I I have to confess, I get sent a lot of pictures of what is this bird? Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes I throw that picture into Merlin to to kind of to help me uh, help me be sure of my my yeah. identification. So you can you you can do that as well. And you so if it's a picture. You know, I'm 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 up there in New York, but I, I have a lot of family and friends still in Alabama. So if somebody sends me a picture from Alabama, I can say this is from Alabama. It's not from New York because it might if if it uses my location, it might think I'm trying to ID a bird in, in uh, New York that's not supposed to be around, and it won't even give me that as an option. So it's got picture ID. A relatively new feature is sound ID. And that's the part that I'm most excited about. I've used it. It's amazing. I, I use it. I use it often. Um, and what it does is it will, uh, it, you can have it running and it will essentially listen to the birds near enough to you for it to, to pick up and ID the birds by song. And it has uh, it has helped me find birds. Uh, there's, I was talking about this earlier today, right? I was I was out in my yard and heard uh, or Merlin picked up a great crested flycatcher earlier in the in the spring, and I had not seen or heard one. Mm-hmm. And when I saw that Merlin identified a great crested flycatcher, well, of course that tuned me into that. I started listening for it. And found it and eventually, you know, heard it a couple times and saw it, you know, so Merlin, uh, Merlin will, will absolutely, absolutely help you find things that, that you may not have seen without it. It was a game changer for me when I was birding earlier this year and it was a warbler migration in the spring and it was a game changer in me being able to identify, to, to detect through the, through just the listening of the app at a Tennessee warbler. I'm not good with bird calls. Uh, Tennessee warbler, Blackburnian warbler. And so I just have that thing going and, and multiple others and I have it going that shows it up and I say, oh, that's, 
it helps reinforce yeah. any kind of rudimentary understanding of those calls as well. Uh, and and yeah, I was able to detect and, and start looking for and then see some of those warblers that it was picking up. And I was like, holy cow, it blew me away at the how, how well it was doing. Now, it identified some birds that I was scratching my head on. I was like, I'm not so sure about that. I'm gonna, I would have to see that one like a cerulean warbler. Yeah. It could be, could have been, but... I would have had to have seen it uh, to make sure. And I know there are still some concerns with that. This is artificial intelligence, machine learning algorithms, right? That people yep. have, that the Macaulay, li uh, Macaulay Library that you talked about, right? That's yes. where a lot of these expert verified calls that have been recorded and kind of linked to a specific species go into that library. And they have been, they're basically the, the source of the data that have trained the models that, that are behind the app, right? Yep. Yeah, and so, always Im still improvements, I'm guessing. Kind of oh, constant yeah. improving of the algorithms and detection, all that type stuff. Definitely, because there's, um, you know, like, like like you were saying, it's, it's, it's artificial intelligence. It can always learn more, right? Yeah. So, the more data we collect, the more accurate those models will get. Oren, when we sat down, I would not have thought that we would have talked for about an hour on all these things. We could probably keep going, but I... <laughs> I appreciate your time. I appreciate uh, certainly all the, the work that y'all are doing there at Cornell. Uh, if, if people have not, are not familiar with the eBird app, uh, the Merlin app, certainly encourage you to look into those. Great, uh, great partner with Cornell Lab of Ornithology. Of course, the app that we would want you to download first is the Ducks Unlimited app. So make sure you have that on your phone first. Then you can go to the Merlin app and the eBird app, right? Right? Y'all would probably say the opposite, but it's all good. We need all three of them. Get all three. More of them on there. Really appreciate you being here and spending, I guess, half a day with us here, talking with our staff and, and then recording this episode here with us. And thanks for sticking around next week for the Science Symposium as well. I'm looking forward to that. And I have, uh, I've had a great time today hanging out with you guys. A special thanks to our guest on today's episode, Dr. Oren Robinson, research associate and all-around smart quantitative guy, waterfowl hunter at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. Appreciate all that he does in a partnership here with Ducks Unlimited. As always, we thank our producer, Chris Isaac, for the great work he does getting these episodes edited and out to you. And to you, the listener, we thank you for your time and we thank you for your support of wetlands and waterfowl conservation. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show. And visit www.ducks.org slash DU Podcast for resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks. Stay tuned to the Ducks. <laughs>